in thinking about the prayers of the Apostle Paul, we began this morning by considering his thanksgiving because he frequently talks about the things that he thanks God for. And we saw that frequently within his epistles, there are two particular things that he continues to talk about with relation to thanksgiving. As he brings into his mind's eye Christian believers who he knows, churches that he loves, there are two things that constantly come to his heart and mind. One, that they have faith in Christ. Two, that they have love for Christ's people. And frequently they are the things, the, the first things, the key things that Paul mentions for thanksgiving. And as we saw in Philippians, he also gives thanksgiving for the way that believers and churches can work alongside and partner together in the sharing of the good news of the gospel so that more people can come to faith in Christ and be part of his body. And so he begins uh, often and frequently with thanksgiving for these things. But of course also in his prayers he gives us some great insights and helps as to what it is that will keep us and sustain us. What will keep and sustain us in our faith in Christ? What will keep us and sustain us as a body and in our love for one another? What will keep us in zeal for gospel work together? And in his prayers he mentions lots of these things as well. And so we'll continue by looking at these uh, final verses in Ephesians chapter 1. And God willing, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at some of the other things that Paul prays about for Christian people and for Christian churches. And one of the things, of course, that keeps cropping up whenever Paul mentions the theme of prayer is that prayer is to be a continuous thing. Pray without ceasing. This is a constant theme of the Apostle. He mentions it in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Constant in prayer. Continual in prayer. Now I suspect that amongst us this evening, there are quite a few who are not yet convinced about the place and priority of prayer in the Christian life and in the life of the church. And not as convinced as you should be about the place and priority of prayer in the life of the church. You do not think it's as important as the apostle did. You don't think it's as important as Jesus did. The Bible plainly teaches that prayer is a priority for Christians and for Christian churches. The, the apostles in the early days of the church in Jerusalem, uh, what were the two things that they said they would give themselves to? The word and prayer. Let's not get bogged down with some of the practical issues that exist within the fellowship. There are others who can see to those things. 
leave us free for these two things for the word of God teaching and preaching it and so that we can pray it's that important Paul is constantly at prayer he, he mentions it so many different times. Uh, read through his other epistles. Read the opening chapters and elsewhere. You get this uh, the same vibe coming through all, all the time. Here is a man who spends many hours in prayer before his God and Father. And of course in this regard he's, he's imitating the one who is his saviour and his example. Jesus was a man of much prayer. Jesus spent hours in communion with his heavenly father. And something that both Jesus and Paul have in common is that it wasn't unusual for them to spend whole nights in prayer. Yet many Christians today are probably of the opinion that to do such a thing is simply unnecessary. It's just, well, it's just a bit too extreme. A whole night in prayer? Does God not know what he's doing? But God loves to hear the prayers of his people. God works through the prayers of his people. And God works most when his people pray most. Did you know that? He does. I was greatly encouraged uh, when we were in Arad over the Easter holidays, a week last Wednesday, we gathered in the upper room, literally, in their, in their building in Arad for their midweek prayer meeting. And I was encouraged for a number of reasons. Reason number one, whole families arrived for prayer. Children. One was only five, I think. Some were 10, 11, 12, 13. Whole families came for an hour of prayer. And nearly all of them from the age of 10 prayed. There was hardly anyone in that room who did not pray. There was never more than about 10 seconds after one prayer ended and another one began. And it was wonderful to be there. It was a privilege to be there. Just about everyone prayed. And what thrilled me was that here were children and teenagers learning the place and the priority of prayer in the life of a local church. Here were children and teenagers who were learning how to pray. They sat quietly and respectfully during that hour. As Mircea began with a short time of devotion from a psalm. And then the church prayed. And the children were there. And it was great. <coughs> Train a child in the way he should go that he might not depart from it. Don't think that doesn't include prayer. 
and it was being exampled in front of our very eyes in Logos Baptist Church in Arad. Parents today, and even Christian parents, are too quick to excuse their children from such things. Oh, they couldn't possibly do that. They can't possibly sit for that long. They couldn't, they can't. Don't excuse them. Train them. That's the biblical way. That is the biblical command. Train them. Teach them. Show them. Be an example to them. That's the biblical way to raise children. And train them to pray. Because prayer matters. Your prayers matter. Your prayers matter to God and your prayers matter to this local church. That's why we're, whenever we talk to people who are, are asking about church membership, one of the things that we emphasise is that we expect them to be at the prayer meeting unless they are providentially hindered from doing so. Now why? Well, it's not because it's just some ritual or duty that we think you have to fulfil. Let me give you two reasons why it's important that we take prayer this seriously. Why church members ought to be at the church prayer meeting? Well, firstly, because corporate prayer in the church matters. Pray without ceasing is the instruction of God through his, through his apostle. Pray without ceasing. It is the will of God. It's not just a good idea, it's more than that. It's not just some elder's idea, it's more than that. It's the will of God that you pray without ceasing. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that you, you must not forsake the gathering together of the church. And it's written as a command. It's a command. Don't forsake the gathering together of the church. And especially when they gather to pray. So not to do it is to disobey. To disobey is to sin. Because the church needs to pray. And the other thing is that true believers should desire to pray. Now you might struggle in prayer, but you should desire to pray. You see, it's expected, actually, that you'll want to be at the prayer meeting. Because <laughs> you know that's where you should be. Because you know it's so necessary for us as a local church. It's part of our lifeline with our Heavenly Father. Now, yes, you might struggle to pray. Maybe you find it hard to discipline yourself to pray. What better way of beginning to discipline yourself in prayer than by attending the weekly prayer meeting? There's a good place to begin. Prioritise it. Plan for it. Dare I say it, drop other things for it. Reorganise your schedule for it. But come 
and pray. Why? Because the church needs it. Pray without ceasing. God loves to hear the prayers of his people. And God's people need to pray. You want to continue in faith in Christ. If you want to see more coming to faith in Christ. If you want our love for one another within this local church to continue to grow and flourish. It needs to be watered with prayer. Pray without ceasing. Secondly, what Paul prays for. Well, there's the thanksgiving side. We saw that this morning. And he prays for numerous things. And we'll be looking at some of the different things that Paul mentions in prayer over the next few weeks. What about here in Ephesians 1? And particularly from verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. What does Paul pray about? Well, three things are brought for our attention here. So let's look at these three things. First of all, Verse 17 and into the first part of verse 18. I'm making mention of you in my prayers, he says at the end of verse 16, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know. We'll hold it there. That you may know. Pray for one another. Pray for Christians. Pray for churches that they may know. You see, there are things that Christians need to know. Look back at verse 13 for a moment. You don't become a Christian in a vacuum. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. There were things that you came to know. And it was on the basis of those things that you knew that you trusted in Christ. Now, yes, as it mentions at the end of the verse, the work of the Holy Spirit is involved here. Bringing this insight and understanding to you. But you were saved on the basis of something you knew. There was truth that was presented to you. And you were given knowledge. Knowledge about yourself in your sin. Knowledge about what that means when Christ returns. Knowledge about the Saviour and about God's mercy and grace. And of all that has been done for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you came to know these things. And you put your faith in Christ on the basis of what you knew. You cannot even become a Christian unless you first of all know something. You need to know the truth. And that whole aspect of knowing continues in your Christian life. Continuing as a Christian is about knowing. Knowing God. Knowing his word. Knowing his will. Knowing his commandments. You're not free to make it up for yourself as you go along. God has spoken in his word and you need to listen so that you know. And Paul says, I'm praying 
for all of you, that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened so that you know more and more and more. And you don't just know it, you understand it. And you understand it so that you can live it. And it changes you. When he talks about the, the, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, it's not something mystical. It comes through the word of God. And it comes as the spirit of God continues his work in you, bringing understanding of these things. Now, Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and do this. But that doesn't mean that Paul says we don't have to pray about it or pray for it. No, it's the very fact that it has been promised that we pray for it. Much of Christian prayer is based upon the things that God has promised. Because we know that's his will. And we pray according to his will. We pray that God will do the things he said he will do. It's not enough to say, but God has already promised, so why pray? You pray precisely because God has promised. And you pray according to his truth. Do you think Paul was mistaken in his devotion to praying about these things? Not at all. God requires that we pray. He requires that we acknowledge our great need, that we would plead that he would do his work. And a large part of that is praying according to the things that God has made known. And so we need to pray that we can know them. How many of you, I wonder, this morning, or maybe this afternoon, spent any time at all praying that during our services today, God would give all of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself. When did you last pray that for a Sunday service? When did you last pray that for the Sunday school classes and for the teachers? When did you last play, pray that for BBB and Impact? When those children and young people meet? That God would work. That he would grant them understanding. That he would open the eyes of their minds. That they might see and comprehend God's truth. And be convinced and convicted. And to know for certain this is the word of God. And this is eternal truth. And this affects me. And I need to respond to this. That's how Paul prayed for Christians. That's how Paul prayed for churches. That God would enlighten our understanding, grant us knowledge. Some of you remember the story of the man who was being shown around uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle by Spurgeon and was asking Spurgeon, uh, why it was that God was so blessing his preaching ministry. And Spurgeon took him down to one of the basement rooms. If you've ever been to the Met Tab, you'll know they've got a vast basement with all kinds of meeting rooms and halls. And down they went into the basement and Spurgeon opened a door. And in that room there were hundreds of people praying. Praying for the next meeting when Spurgeon would preach praying for their pastor, praying that God would work 
today. In many places, Christians just want some charismatic, gifted orator who will come and arrive at the platform and do it all for them. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. You have to pray. God works when his people pray. And even men like Spurgeon, that man who was given the title Prince of Preachers, There, he said, pointing at the praying congregation. That's where the work's being done. In the prayer meeting. We are fools indeed if we ignore these things. Pray for one another that your knowledge and understanding will increase. Because that knowledge and understanding is what God's spirit will use to shape and change your life to the glory of your God and Saviour. The second thing that we learn to pray for in these verses is your future hope. Verse 18. And it's at the end of the the end of the verse. What is the hope that you may know what is the hope of his calling? And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, these two phrases that we see there. First, what is the hope of his calling? And secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Really, that's two ways of talking about the same thing. They're not two completely distinct and separate things. He talks about the hope of your calling. He's talking about that future hope. That which is certain and promised. And that future hope, well that is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's all the same thing. Now he talks about calling. Your calling. This is a term describing that which God has done in bringing you to Christ. Before time began, teaches the Bible. If you're a Christian believer, you were known to God and you were loved by him. And before time began, he looked upon you in mercy and grace and chose you for salvation. And in the fullness of time, Christ Jesus came into the world. And he died for you at Calvary and rose again. And through that act, actually secured your salvation for you. And then, one day, you heard the message of the gospel. And you came to know something. And through that message, God, by his spirit, called you into the experience and the reality of that salvation. The salvation was already done. But God called you and it became a real experience in your life. And you were actually saved. Christ's sheep hear his voice. Theologians call it the effectual call. There are people, one service, sitting in a pew and they hear the voice of a preacher 
but they suddenly become aware that there's another voice that's calling. There's another voice that's speaking. And it's God himself calling and drawing them to him in saving grace. They are called. And he speaks of the hope of that calling, your hope. Now, that word today, hope, well, it means wishful thinking. Maybe, but who knows? Hope in the Bible has a very different definition. Hope in the Bible is something which is certain, but which you don't yet have. You don't yet have it, but it's certain that you will. The great hope of the Christian is heaven. You don't yet have it, but you will. You will. And that's your hope. And that's your hope in this life, with all all of its trials and struggles and difficulties. That's your hope. Ah. Look what's coming. The riches of the glory of the inheritance which God has ready for us. The Bible at various points gives us some little glimpses and hints as to what the glories of heaven might actually be like. You know, we really cannot even begin to grasp how glorious it's going to be. Why does Paul mention this? Well, because the world is fixated upon gaining as much as you can of this world in this life because it thinks that's all there is. So you just have to make the most of what you've got now because who knows what comes next. Therefore, men and women live for themselves and they live for today and for what can be accumulated. And so they spend most of their time and energy on the things of this world for today this is what they live for lining their own nest with as much as they can because that's all they can see that's all they can hope for now the Christian may enjoy a great deal of good things from God's creation but that's not what they live for it's not what they live for If we can put it this way, the Christian's nest here on earth is not their priority. Because they are certain that something far, far greater lies beyond the grave. Something far greater. And none of those things that you might be able to accumulate in this life will make any contribution whatsoever to what you have there. None at all. The things in this life, they're fleeting, they're temporary, they're the work of men's hands. And soon they will all be gone and soon you will leave them all behind. But heaven, in heaven that which you have in heaven will be eternal, incorruptible, it will not fade away. And God is preparing an inheritance for you in his glory. So Paul's prayer is that as Christians, you will live looking heavenward, not down at the earth, not at the things of this world. Heavenly-minded people. Now, of course, one of the, uh, one of the great problems with 
the prosperity gospel, which is gaining ground all around the globe, is that what is taught is that the Christian life is all about having God's best for you now in this life. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Because the Bible teaches of persecutions and sufferings that need to be endured by the Lord's people. The Bible speaks of crosses that have to be carried. The Bible speaks of sacrifices that have to be made. And so the Christian who's fixated upon the things of this life and this world is not ready to embrace such things. But the Christian who's been reminded and taught to keep their eyes fixed upon their eternal reward, which is the riches of God's inheritance, which he has prepared, well, such a Christian can endure all manner of hardships. Why? Because look what lies ahead. Look where we're going. Look where the race finishes. That's the issue. Such a Christian will embrace any kind of denying yourself to follow Christ. For look at the future hope that I have in him. Why did the martyrs of the Reformation not shrink away from the threat of death? Why didn't they? Why did the mission pioneers of the 17th and 18th centuries forsake everything to go to the ends of the earth? Some of them well-known men like C.T. Studd, an international English cricketer. He was known the length and breadth of the country and he abandoned it all. Why would, why would men do that? How was it that when the next generation saw that most of those men and women who went out never came back, or if they did, it was in a coffin, why did they have no hesitation in abandoning everything and going out to take their place? What was it about them? Because they knew what their hope was. And they knew where their hope was. And they were thoroughly, thoroughly convinced. Are you? Paul prays. Oh, that they might know where their hope is. With Christ in glory. And that they might live for that. Everything else can be laid aside. Everything else can be given up. In order that we might have that. You need to pray that for one another. And thirdly, finally. Praying about the power that is at work in you. And that's verse 19 through to the end of the chapter. This power that's at work in the Christian. Paul is praying that you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward you who believe. That power which worked in Christ, that power which was able to bring Christ bodily out of the tomb while the stone was still in place. What power was at work in bringing Christ 
back from the grave. What power was at work in raising Christ far above every known power and principality and dominion? We believe that those verses there talking about uh, him being seated in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Those things there are, are talking um, about ranks of angelic beings and things that we don't really have any understanding of in the heavenly places. And far, far above all of those things, Christ, the risen Christ in his resurrection body has been raised and seated above all of those things, the head of his church, over all things. Now, this has been one of the major themes in our studies in the letter to the Hebrews, hasn't it? The supremacy of Christ over all these things. What power there is in this one who is the head of his church over all things. The one who holds at bay the power of the evil one. The one who restrains the influence of Satan. That Satan can go so far but no further. What power there is in holding him back. The one who's working all things according to his eternal will and purposes. And that there is nothing in this world that can thwart the designs and the plans of God. And this is the power at work in you. And Paul prays, oh, that they might know, that they might see, that they might understand, that they might realize this great power of God is at work in me and you. What a difference it makes when you realize that. No wonder you can... No wonder you could never save yourself if it takes power like this to save you. And, you know, you need to be careful that you don't elevate this person's conversion as being so wonderful and miraculous that the conversion of this one is just a small thing. takes the same power of God to save everyone it takes this great power of God to save everybody every converted soul is a glorious and mighty demonstration of God's saving power not just that special one over there who always gets invited to gospel meetings to share their testimony because somehow we think their conversion is more glorious than everybody else's rubbish rubbish Every single one of you, were it not for this mighty power of God being at work in you, you would still be lost in your sins. God has done this by his mighty power in every single one of us. No wonder Paul's heart is bursting with thankfulness to God. Because he understands these things. Oh, that everyone else will see and know these things. When you catch on to this, it will keep you from thinking that what you currently have as a Christian is somehow some small thing and that there must be something bigger and better that you can move on to. No, what God has done in you is a marvellous and staggering thing and it takes that much power to do it. The power that only God has to save a human soul 
And this saving power will continue until all of Christ's church have been gathered in. Those believers together are to be a presentation of Christ's body here on earth. That's what's being talked about at the end. Um, verse 23. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That, that all, all will eventually be gathered in and that we as the Lord's people will be a, a proper demonstration of Christ in this world. Here is how we should pray continually. Be a biblical Christian by making prayer your priority. Pray that all will be enlightened with biblical knowledge and understanding. Pray for the preaching and teaching of young and old. Pray for our children that they'll be given knowledge and that through that knowledge they might be saved. And pray that they will grow and continue to learn. Pray that we might know and experience and witness the ongoing greatness of God's power in our lives. We cannot produce any of these spiritual things for ourselves. We're reliant entirely upon the power of God. It takes a power far greater than anything that we possess outside of Christ. So pray. Pray that as Christ's body, he will continue to add all who have been appointed to eternal life and that together we'll be an effective witness and embodiment of Christ as the Lord's people. Pray that we might live as those who have their eyes fixed upon heaven and with a never-failing expectancy of being there because of the certainty of the power that has raised Christ and placed him there already. We know we will be there too and it is promised in his word. You see, this is what biblical Christian churches are all about. And that's why Paul prays for these things. Do you want Belvedere Road Church to be like that? Pray. What about the Listen Liverpool churches who we stand alongside on Church Street? Pray for them. Pray for the same for them. What about Trinity Baptist in Nairobi? What about Logos Baptist in Arad? What about the churches over in Sri Lanka? Those churches that Trevor Baker talks about out in Albania when he comes once a year. Pray for them. As Paul prayed. Make Paul's prayer your prayer. And pray without ceasing.